But what's interesting about this book is it's one of the, the only books in the Bible, I think it might be the only one, the only book in the Bible that doesn't say anything about God and doesn't say anything about prayer. It, it just doesn't show up in the, in the story. As you're reading it, you're going, well, I can see that stuff is happening, but it's not talking and pointing, giving God the glory. Like, shouldn't the Bible give God the glory? And it just doesn't. And that sounds a whole lot more like my real life, doesn't it? Like, you're not going down the street and there's a sign that says, stop, praise Jesus, hallelujah. Like, it just says stop, right? So we can take that sign and, and interpret it literally, or we can take it and interpret it spiritually, but I do ask you to interpret it liberty, lib, yeah, literally, please, as you're driving. <clears throat> but that sounds like real life. God doesn't show up in my real life explicitly. Like, when I come to the Word, I see, oh, He is working, but it wasn't like I didn't get it in the moment. That sounds like real life. The other book is the book of Psalms, and if you've ever had any experience with the book of Psalms, it can just sometimes feel like, a lot of God language. There's a lot of God stuff going on, and it feels like it's dis- it feels like it's from another planet, right? It's like, what do you mean you're praising Jesus? Like you're praising God when all of this bad stuff is going, and and the Lord is fighting your battles, and, and there's an army, and, and and like there's all this stuff going on in the Psalms. You go, that doesn't sound like Friday. And so what I'd like to do this morning, or what we have been doing, is, is, is taking the book of Esther and telling that story, and really summarizing that story. Um, we do have a Bible reading guide. There's a couple in the entryway, and that'll guide you through your week of reading through the story of Esther. Um, but I'm just going to summarize it. I'm not going to read it. Because what I really would like to get to is what does prayer look like in real life? If you identify with what's happening in this section of the book of Esther, then when you come to the book of Psalms, how does this actually relate to what's going on in real life? And that's been how our series has been progressing. Um, Last week was a little bit of a downer, probably the most uh, serious psalm that's in the whole book um, and one of the more difficult ones to chew on. Uh, Psalm 109. That we're gonna we're gonna start to take a little bit of a turn here. So if you're really depressed after last week, we're we're moving in a, in a positive direction this morning. But before we do that, let's pause together and let's pray. Lord, we uh, we want to trust in you. We do trust in you, but we want to trust in you more. And God, we don't necessarily trust our ability to discern things. So help us to lean on your understanding. This morning, God, as, as, as we explore your word together, God, I pray that you would guide us, that your spirit would lead us um, not only to have a heart and a, and a passion and, and a, um, a love for the word that you've given to us, but that your spirit would then apply it to our hearts, that it would um, be lived out as we go into this week. And Lord, I pray again that uh, if, if there's anything that I say that's just my own nonsense, that God, those things would be forgotten real quick. Um, if there's anything that's, that's incorrect in what I'm saying, that that thing will be forgotten real quick, but that your enduring word would stand firm forever. That it would be... Uh, born in our hearts and carried throughout the rest of this week and throughout these months of our lives. 
We thank you that you're present here with us, and we ask that you would find willing servants with open ears this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So life in the palace was actually not so bad. Esther had kind of been abducted. It's not real clear about what's going on, but she'd been abducted into this beauty pageant, and this this little Jewish girl uh, who'd been raised by her cousin was now suddenly queen of the nation of Persia. And that maybe wasn't such a bad deal. Like, the king was kind of a jerk. He had this real mindset of, like, if, if anybody forgets who you are, don't hesitate to remind him because he's royal blood and all of that kind of thing. He's a little bit of a, of a jerk. Um, but by and large, palace life was okay, right? Like, who wouldn't opt to live in a palace over a shack? And there were servants who would take care of her, and there was always food on the table, and life was, you know, pretty good. And, and really, by and large, the king was a jerk, Ahasuerus, but... but he was also really distracted. He had stuff going on. He didn't really talk to her very much. And, and, and it was a kind of deal where he couldn't, where if he didn't call for her, she didn't go. And they just lived their lives, separate lives, like roommates. But the house is enormous, so it doesn't matter that you're roommates, right? And so she continues on. And, and, and the thing that she remembered that as her cousin was raising her, his name was Mordecai, as her cousin was raising her, he said, you know, don't, don't, don't tell people where you come from. Like, just, just, you're a Jew and you come from Israel. Just don't, you don't have to mention that to people. And, and, and by and large, it's been you know, okay. Things have worked out pretty well for her. She's, she's well fed. She's taken care of. She's got like all the cosmetic supplies in that folding mirror. is like stacked, man. And every time she gets a little bit low, like somebody else is putting another fingernail polish up there. Like she doesn't even have to think about it. It's awesome. And she could go shopping if she wanted to, but like they just bring the stuff to her. And life is good in the palace. And, and, and the servants, they come and go, and they do their own thing, and that's fine too, and, and she appreciates them. But, but, but one of them comes and says, hey, uh, uh, Esther, um, um, your cousin Mordecai who, who raised you, uh, he, he's cracked. He's lost his mind. He's, he's out in the courtyard, and, and, and he's torn his robes, and he's put on sackcloth, and he's just screaming at the top of his lungs, like, something has happened, and this man has lost his mind, like, you got to say something like get him if he's going to have a problem like at least take him home and let him deal with it at home he doesn't need to be in the public square to deal with his nonsense and so she sends a note out or sends a a text so i don't know if she wrote it down and sent it to the servant but she sends a carrier out there to say hey uh, uh uh mordecai like what's going on because life is good in the palace and mordecai sends a note back. He says, Haman, that, that, that one guy who's like, who, who, who kind of runs things, he got put in charge of stuff and now he thinks he runs the world and he, he made a law that everybody had to bow down to him and, and he and I really don't get along but it never has really been a problem. Like he has escalated this thing really, really quickly and like where before it was just kind of like passive aggressive, like, like across the room. Like now this is like legit aggressive. He is, he's, bribed the king to make a law so that not only am I going to die, but all of the Jews that are in Persia are going to die too. And he set up a day that anybody who wants to can just go out Jew killing. And they can slaughter whoever they want and take whatever they want from them. And, 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 and I'm upset about that. I'm sure you can imagine. 
And I'm surprised you haven't heard that. Like, here, I've written out a copy of the, of the decree, and I'm giving it back to you so you can see what the decree is, and, and you can understand, like, he's paying money into the king's treasury to get this passed, and this is the specific amount of silver that the king's getting from the life of the Jews. Like, this is a problem, Esther, and I'm upset about it. Maybe, maybe, maybe you could go and talk to the king about this. Uh, well, that's news to Esther because life is good in the palace and it's been a while since she's been shopping. But the whole city is upset. It's not just Mordecai. Everybody's a little bit worked up over this, Jews in particular, you can imagine. And, well, what do I do? Like, I, that's, that problem seems so far away from me. Like, there's a separation between me and this other thing. And like, it's not really, I guess my problem, but it's not really my problem. And, and I care about you, Mordecai, but... Maybe it's outside of my means to care for you now. Because don't you know that my life could be in danger too? Like, the way that this king works is like, if you, if he doesn't call for you, you don't go to him. And if you show up in his courtroom and you haven't asked for permission to be there or he hasn't asked you to come, then he just kills you. And that's the end of it. So if he hasn't called me in 30 days, and I'm kind of okay with that, but, but I haven't been called, and so I can't just go in there and talk to him. There's a procedure, and I don't know that I can do this. She sends this message back to him. <laughs> Mordecai, he gets this message from, from his cousin, his little cousin, his daughter, his cousin. He raised her. And man, it it just always seems like he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he he writes, he sends her a note back. He says, Esther, I've always been in the wrong place at the wrong time. But maybe this time, maybe this time you're in the right place at the right time. And don't think that just because you've kept it a secret that you're a Jew, that you're going to escape from this. There's got to be somebody in the palace who knows because palace people's job is to know the dirt. And so if you don't stand up for us, it's like we're going to get help from somewhere, but if, if you don't stand up for us, then you and your father's house are just going to be gone and obliterated. Which is all right. We're going to fast. Don't eat or drink anything for three days. Go and tell all the Jews that are in the city that we're not going to eat or drink anything for three days. And me and all of my, my, my servants and all of us, we're going to do the same thing. We're, gonna not, we're not going to eat for three days and three nights, and we're going to fast. And so three days and three nights go, and her tummy's grumbling. And it's her, her life is like on the line, like at this moment. She's standing outside the door, and if she knocks on that door and he, and he had a bad lunch, like, this could be the end. He's, he's already kind of hard to handle. He doesn't really think through things very well. And I wouldn't be the first queen that he's gotten rid of. So she opens the door and walks in. And there he is sitting on his chair. And he extends his staff to her as a sign that he recognizes her and he wants her to come in. 
And so she breaks out in a cold sweat, I'm sure, and walks across the room and touches the staff to acknowledge that she's, she knows that she shouldn't be there, but she's there. And he's happy. Esther, oh my God, I, I forgot I had a wife. Like, it's so good to see you. I like looking at you. What is it that you want? Like, ask, ask me for anything. What is it that you want? Because I'll give you anything up to half of the kingdom. Like, what, what can I do for you, Esther? Like, I can't believe I forgot that you were, like, in the palace. Like, this is crazy we'd run into each other like this. And she just says, she says, oh, okay, Ooh, this is going okay. Um, well, what I would like to happen is I'd like to give you a feast. And then back of her mind, she hasn't eaten in three days. But I'd like to give you a feast. Let me throw you a banquet. Let me cook for you. Biscuits and gravy. Or pot roasts. And, and, and even if she wasn't good looking, like now he's got to his heart. Let me cook for you. And hey, let me throw you a banquet and, and, and bring, bring your friend Haman, because that guy likes to eat too. Bring him and, and we'll, we'll, let's, go, let's go eat dinner together tonight. Let's eat dinner. Cool. I can do that for sure. But he's not completely ignorant because he knows this isn't the end of it, right? Like she came and she hasn't talked to him in a, in a month. And now she's coming and then like offering to cook for him like herself. Like, oh, there's something, there's something else going on here. So they, they go, he calls Haman and says, Haman, you know, we're going to dinner right now. Like, let's go. And I don't know what's up, but, but we're going to be all right. And so they go and they're, they're drinking and they're eating. And, and, and he says again, he says, hey, Esther, like, what do you want? Like, what can I, what can I do for you? How, what, I'll give you anything up to half of the kingdom. And she's been waiting. Like, is this the moment? It's been three days. Like, it's been three days and she got to eat a lot yesterday and now she's like getting back to normal and, and now here's the opportunity. It's the second day, the second feast. And What is it that you want? Let me, let me, let me cook another meal for you. Can I, can I cook you another meal tomorrow? Would that be okay? Like, I'd really like, I, I just, you know, it's been a month. Like, maybe we can have dinner together and light some candles or something. Actually, you know, forget the candles. Just bring Haman. Like, I, I'll hang out with Haman, too. And she's always been the underdog, but she's never let herself be the victim. And maybe she's in the right place at the right time for the first time in her family's history. Would you open with me to Psalm chapter 90, please? Psalm 90, and if you're using the blue Bibles, there should be some blue Bibles stuffed in the chairs uh, underneath in front of you. Um, it's on page 622, 622 in the blue Bibles. Psalm 90. Page 622 in the Blue Bibles, Psalm 90. The heading is this. It's a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So Moses is responsible for compiling and writing the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Numbers is in there too, not in that order, sorry. Um, but apparently he was a songwriter too, and this is one left over from him which I think is fascinating. So this is one that she, well, she, would have been, she could have been familiar with any of them, but this is an old, old, old one. 
This is a throwback. This is like, I don't know if you know this. The song, Be Thou My Vision, is actually like 1,200 or 12,000 years old, 1,200 years old. Like it's one of the oldest hymns that we still sing today. But this song, Psalm 90, would have been that for her. It's, an, it's not just a hymn. It's an old one. I, everybody knows this one. Right. So. Psalm 90, verse 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, for, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So he starts, he opens this psalm and says, hey God, like, there's stuff going on in the world. I'm aware that there's stuff going on in the world. Like I know, and I'm getting ready to tell you like some of the things that are happening, but I just want to start with like you. There are a lot of places that I could start, but let me start with you because you are everlasting to everlasting. You, we are, are, are shelter in you. Like even before the mountains were created, which is hard for me to think, if, even before the mountains were created, like we could take shelter in you because you were. You're the one who's responsible for the world that I live in. You're the one who's responsible for the, for the ability to even struggle with or to be uh, uncomfortable in this world. You brought me into this world. You gave me the body to experience it with. And some of the things I complain about to you, you're the one who even gave me the reason to complain about them. From everlasting to everlasting, before the mountains were brought forth, you formed the earth and the world. You are God. This is, this is, this is, if I can oversimplify a very complicated issue, I'm convinced that this is, this is the problem of humanity. This is the one thing that we always get wrong when we're left to ourselves. The psalmist writes, Moses writes, you are God. And anytime that we forget that, anytime we walk away from that, that's when things go wrong for us. When we say, I am God or I will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. So the psalm starts with, you are God. Continue reading with me in verse 3. <laughs> I, I promise that it's going to get positive, but we gotta, we got to go down a little bit more before we get there, so hang with me. You return man to dust and say, return O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So in verses 1 and 2, he, he makes a very pointed, very concise 
uh, statement that you are God. And then from verses 3 down to verse 11, he makes the very pointed and expanded statement that we are not. You are God and we are not. We fail. We fall short. We don't make it to the standard that you've set for us. And life is a pain in the butt. Can I just point out, you guys have heard me complain about this. I want to show you that it's biblical. Look, look with me real quick. Look with me real quick in verses 5 and 6. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream. Like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withered. Listen, the biggest reminder that humanity is futile is mowing the lawn. Every time you mow the lawn, that should just be depressing to you because it reminds you that the grass grows up and, and you, can, you can cut it in the morning and the next day you're going to have to cut it again. Week after week after week after week after week after week. So I just, I'm justifying myself here because you've heard me complain about it, but it's in the Bible, so I'm, I'm okay with it now. I knew it was in there, but I'm just saying. <clears throat> yeah, it's in, it's in James 2 also, but anyway. So he says, return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Here's the thing. We're not real good at keeping track of time. How many of us feel like this year has been the fastest year we've ever lived? It is November, people. Tomorrow will be New Year's. We're, we're, we don't have a great perspective on time. And then you get into like the physics of it and whether time is speeding up or slowing down and how we travel through it. And that's more than I can handle. But here's the thing, and I don't know that I have a time to explain so much of it, but time is a creation. If time, if time is something that is created, it is something that God is outside of. So if I draw a line on a piece of paper and write numbers on it. I have created that line, but I'm not bound by that line. I stand outside of it, and I see it from beginning to end. And even if I put little people in the middle of that line and tell them that they're stuck to it until it gets to the end, like I'm still outside of it. Does that picture make sense in your head? We don't have great perspective on time. I don't even remember what I ate for breakfast this morning, and yet God sees it all from beginning to end with perfect clarity. That's the thing. It's not just that he sees it, it's that he sees every detail of it. And he knows it. And so it's not wrong for us, it's not wrong or sinful for us to be finite. This is, this is something that is kind of a nuance, but I struggled with it for a long time. It's not sinful for us to be finite because we were created finite. It's not wrong that you have to live day after day after day after day after day. And then when you die, the days actually continue. That's a weird thing. God made time, and now he makes us continue in it, although he stands outside of it. But it's not wrong for us to be finite. It's not sinful for us to have incomplete knowledge. And yet our incomplete knowledge somehow helps us to forget that God is God and I'm not. And when I begin to operate as though I'm God, that's when I fall into sin. It's not wrong for me to be limited. It's not wrong for me to be finite. It's not wrong for me to have to live day after day after day because Jesus was perfect and he did it and he continues to do it today. That's one of the, we're getting, we're, we're headed in that direction, but that's one of the miracles of the incarnation. When Jesus was, was implanted into Mary, 
infinite creator God from outside the space-time continuum who saw it from beginning to end, brought himself into the space-time continuum and limited himself there for the rest of eternity. Jesus hasn't just come down to like hang out and be buddies. Like he, he, he's come down and, and really limited himself. Like he says he's going to be with us to the end of his days. Like that's a cost on him. So return man to dust. Remember what we are. Who was it that knelt in the garden and fashioned Adam? Whose breath was it that brought him to life? And so when God's angry, that's the end of us. If we make God angry, like who are we to stand in the face of God and say like, you don't have any right to be angry with me? Like, you're half a speck. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. I don't even get an amen on that. Come on. Yeah. They're soon gone and we fly away. So the miracle, I think, is not that, you know, life is hard. The miracle, I think, is that infinite God steps into our world and cares about the half a speck. And he cares about the half a speck enough to lay down his son's life to redeem them to himself. So all we got is maybe 80 years at the best. And I think it's interesting that Moses is writing this. Moses died when he was 120. He got out pretty good. But every single day of those 120 years, once he started working with Israel, was but toil and trouble. I can tell you that. They never stopped complaining and telling him he was doing a bad job when all he was trying to do was what God told him to do. And I don't know if anybody else has children, but that's what it feels like, right? I'm going to name him for that. There you go. God gives us each day as a gift. And when I wake up in the morning and I think about the things I got to do, or I start to roll out of bed and I start, like I'm 30 now, so I'm starting to get some aches and pains and you guys laugh at me, but it's true. <laughs> when, I gotta, when I got those aches and pains that, are, that I'm walking to the bathroom, I'm like, God, what is this? And... <laughs> I know, I know. I have led you there. I have led you there. I have led you there to show you this. God gives us each day as a gift. Because you can laugh at my pain. I got no comprehension of what you're struggling with as you're waking up in the morning. But every morning, God gives us as a gift. It's not something that we earned. It's not something that we can just lay claim on and say, like, God, you owe me tomorrow. I got a whole lot of stuff to get done. If I don't show up to work, my boss is going to kill me. It's not a guarantee. There's, there, there's, no, there's no guarantee in Scripture that you'll make it to the next nine weeks. That you'll get the opportunity to take your next exam. 
God gives us each day as a gift. So what do we do with that? Read with me. Continue in verse 12. (laughs) So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, O Yahweh, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, your chesed, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So if all we've got is 80 years, there's this barb in our soul that wants it to count for something. And Moses says, God, if you don't make it count, if you don't establish it, if you don't establish what I'm doing, it's gone. You sweep them away as with a flood. It's like a dream. And for agricultural people who didn't necessarily like do a good job at reading or keeping written records, like who maybe never saw their own personal name written down, when you died, your kids were it. They were the only ones who were going to care enough to remember your name. And so with all of the things that keep you busy this week, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. But what's the framework for how we work? What are the glasses that we look through to try and understand what you got to do on Tuesday morning? Oh Lord, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. There's times where we're standing outside a big door, and we know if we knock on it, our life is going to change one way or the other. And there are times like that where we look at God and say, God, don't you know the risk you're asking me to take here? Don't you know I could die? He does. But the invitation still stands. Will you cling on, hold on to that gift that you did nothing to inherit? Will you hold on to that like it's a priceless treasure? Or will you hold it out to the creator of the universe who gave it to you and say, not my will, but yours be done? We trust God, we trust him with today because God gives us each day as a gift. What is the invitation that Jesus has extended to you that you say, don't you know the risk that you're asking me to take here, God? This could ruin my reputation or people are going to think I'm weird or, you know, I could die. 
We trust him with today because God gives us each day as a gift. Would you pray with me? Lord, Lord I, I, I don't know how else to conclude this except to pray with the psalmist. You have been our dwelling place. You're the one who we rest in. You're the one that we can find any security in. You, you created the, the mountains and the seas and you created our bodies and you brought us into this story that you were working out in the earth. And you see the beginning from the end and God, all I can see is maybe what's going to happen in the next 20 minutes. And even that, I got no idea. But I thank you for your son Jesus who stepped in and who has given us his righteousness. That he took the fullness of your wrath and your anger upon himself. But God, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Let your favor be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Not because we can earn a right relationship with you, but because you've left us here to do good work. It's in your name I pray. Amen.